The Torah, of course, begins with two creation stories. The first describes a perfectly ordered world which a transcendent God creates with no resistance. Everything is in its place. Everything we are told is tov. And collectively, it's tov ma'od. In the second creation story, which begins in the second chapter, there we have a different story. There, among other things, we are told in the middle of that chapter that God says, Lo tov adam levado. There's something about the second account. There's something not quite tov. And the description of the God of the second account is very different. Whereas in the first account, God is thinking or speaking. Vayomer is the key word of the first account. In the second account, we have a set of verbs that describe God in very human terms. Vayita Hashem Elohim, God is planting. Vayatzmach, Vayiven, God is building and planting and causing things to grow. So one might say that the description of God in the second account is quite different, one might say more human, than the transcendent God of chapter 1. And of course, a critical difference between the two accounts is that whereas in the first account, the human being is created on day number 6, together with the animals, or right after them, and we have uh, an account of the creation of Shemayim va'aretz, of, of nature, of being. The human may be the last of the created things, but the human being, created on the same day as the animals, is part of nature. Completes God's creation of, of nature. But in the second account, in chapter 2, it's very different. There, it would appear, on, on, the, on the face of it, that it's about the creation of the human being and everything that's created is created for the human being. For example, in chapter 2, in verse number 3, This translation says, when God made earth and heaven, there was no shrub of the field yet on earth. No grasses of the field had yet sprouted because the Lord God had not uh, sent rain upon the earth. There was no human to till the soil. Sounds like, at first blush, that there's no vegetation, or at least nothing is sprouting, because there's no human to work the land. And similarly, later, when God determines that it's not good for the human being to be alone, there the Torah says that God caused uh, to... Uh, God shaped from the earth in verse number uh, 19 that God seeing that the human being is alone and that's not good shapes from the earth the animals of the field and the birds of heaven there too it would appear at least at first blush that we have the human and the animals are created for the sake of the human. Whereas in chapter number one, it appears that the human is created after everything else. Furthermore, 
the description of the human being in the second chapter is very different. The human being in chapter 1 uh, is endowed or created in God's image, Selim and Dumut, however we understand it. The human being in chapter 1 is permitted to eat the plants and the fruit. The human being in chapter 1, though, has, seems to have no responsibilities, only, only privileges, only rights. The human being in chapter 1 is created Adam, Oto, but we're also told male and female, God created them. But the description in the second account is very different. In the second account, it's about aloneness, it's about mortality, it's about evil in the form of this snake, it's about desire, it's about exile, it's about sexuality. In short, it's about what we consider to be human. Whereas in chapter 1, the Torah describes the human being who's part of the natural order as male and female, Zachar and Nekeva. In the second chapter, we have Ishvi Isha. Ishvi Isha is not simply a biological description, but a cultural description. So we have these two accounts. And the question is, what are we to make of the two accounts? Or what is the relationship, if any, between these two accounts? For some, the two accounts are two disparate accounts, and they have no relationship one with the other. The human being is, in effect, both. And one might say oscillates between the two. That's essentially what emerges, for example, from Rabbi Soloveitchik's well-known essay, The Lonely Man of Faith. And I would say that uh, Dr. Breuer, Rabbi Breuer, who writes about the, uh, his commentary on the Torah, essentially has a similar approach. To see them as two different accounts, maybe reflecting different aspects of the human personality, but essentially different. In this way, I would say that what's common to both is that they, for better or worse, have accepted the view that the Torah consists of a set of disparate chapters, documentary hypothesis, and that this is no real connection between the two of them, outside of the fact that we find the first account in chapter 1 and the second account in chapters 2 and 3. So I wanted to begin this evening with two uh, observations about that approach. And I wanted to put out there what I think is a, a fruitful way to understand this, these chapters. First of all, it is clear to me that we don't have two equal accounts of the human being. There is essentially one account of the human being in the Torah, and that's the second creation story. The first creation story is not the primary uh, way that the Torah wants us to see the human. That's point number one. And point number two is that the two accounts are in dialogue with each other. One might even say the first account sets up the second. Let me begin first with what I think is a useful way to map out the creation stories of the book of Genesis. First of all, let me say straight out that it, the creation stories do not end with the second creation account. Far from it. The creation stories begin with the first two creation accounts 
And then we have the destruction of the world, the flood. And then we have the recreation of the world in the story of Noah. The world is recreated. In fact, the language that the Torah uses to describe the recreation of the world is quite parallel to the language the Torah uses to describe the creation of the world. But it actually doesn't end there either. The creation of the world in the book of Genesis ends in chapter 22 of the book of Genesis. The story we know as the binding of Isaac or Akedat Yitzchak. A useful way to think of it is this way. The first chapter of the Torah describes the creation of heaven and earth. Shamayim Va'aretz, chapter 1. What distinguishes the second account from the first is primarily the main point. It's different in a hundred ways. But for our purposes this evening, the main distinction between them is that whereas in the first account it's about creation of everything, in the second account it's about creation of a particular place. We might call that sacred space, which the Torah refers to as, as Gan Eden. A Gan Eden Mikedem. It's a special place. It's not every place. It's one place. And from this place, the earth is nourished. The rivers which water Aden, the waters that water Aden spread out to the four directions and they water the world. Then the world is destroyed in the book of, of, of Genesis, the story of Noah. And when Noah comes out, the world is recreated. And the instructions given to Noah to be fruitful, to multiply, pruel, revul, shirtsubaaretz, that's all taken or related to the first creation account. What we don't have in the story of Noah is the creation of sacred space. That we don't have. Sacred space, that is to say, a particular place. That's not the story of Noah. That's the story of, of Abraham. And, and in two different ways. First of all, in chapter 12, Abraham is directed to go to the place that I will show you. That's chapter 12. To the sacred place that I will show you. That's in chapter 12. That's the first lechucha. And the second lechucha, and that term only appears twice in the whole Bible, the second lechucha is chapter 22. And in chapter 22, Akedat Yitzchak, Abraham is commanded to go to the place Asher Omar Lecha, the place which I will tell you, Abraham sets out El HaMakom Asher Elohim, to the place that, that God has spoken. In short, we have then, therefore, creation, two creation stories of totality of creation, sacred space, destruction of the world, and recreation. First of uh, the world in general, and then two sacred spaces. The first one being the land of Canaan, the Holy Land. That's the first sacred space. And the second one, the holiest place, the space within the space. That's the story of, of Akedat Yitzchak and the discovery of the sacred space. This little scheme, this little way to see it, will prove to be of immense uh, utility for our purposes this evening. And I think if you, once we see this, I know you're thinking it's self-evident. It's, it's obvious. The scheme is very useful towards an understanding of many things in the Torah. Now,
this particular understanding that the world actually is created or is the creation stories end in chapter 22 and, and have three, one might say, three, uh, three parts. The first part being the creation of the world in general through Adam. The second being the recreation of the world through Noah. And finally, the creation or this, the, the final, finalizing the creation through Abraham. Well, I'm not the first to understand it. Someone precedes me by many years. And the one who precedes me is the author of what is known in that tradition as Tikiata de Beirav. Tikiata de Beirav is the text of the Rosh Hashanah service. The Rosh Hashanah service, which consists of three main blessings, the central one being, of course, what is known in that tradition as Zichronot, remembrances, that itself has three parts. If you re- recall the Rosh Hashanah service, you remember that it starts with the phrase, Atazocher Maseolam. It, it, it begins with God remembering everything that happens in the world. It describes, in short, the God who sees everything, everybody, and who judges everybody and everything. All created beings are judged. In the middle of that first section, which describes, which is about Rosh Hashanah as the day of judgment, we have the following little phrase. This is a day, the beginning of your creations, a remembrance of the first day. Now what does that mean? A remembrance of the first day. What does that mean? So, what the Rosh Hashanah text is about is this. According to the Midrash, Rosh Hashanah, in our tradition, is not the first day of creation. It's the sixth. The world is created on the 25th of Elul. The sixth day, which is the first day of Tishrei, is Rosh Hashanah, is the creation of the human. Secondly, the Midrash claims that the day in which the human being is created, the human also sins. Thirdly, the Midrash claims that the day of sin is the day of, uh, of uh, judgment means the first Rosh Hashanah is the day of Adam's judgment. And we are saying in the Rosh Hashanah service, we are recalling this. Zayom Tchilat Ma'asecha, probably related to the to- verse in the Torah, Na'ase Adam B'Tzalmenu. And this day of creation of Adam was the first day of judgment. And we, we Jews, enter into the judgment. We enter the, into the day of Rosh Hashanah, reliving that day of judgment. That's how we begin the Zichronot service. And God judges all of us, and God knows everything, our desires, our impulses, our excuses. And then we continue. It's, it's pretty dire. And then we, as we continue, we say something else. We say that those who seek God will not be disappointed. Those who seek God won't be disappointed. And suddenly it says, You remember Noah. Noah take center stage on, on Rosh Hashanah. Okay, maybe not center stage, but he's on the stage. And he represents something else. He represents the idea of providence. Yes, God judges everybody, but some people have a better chance than others. And the day of Rosh Hashanah, if you're Noah, there's hope. Kamas Noah God remembered Noah. Hashgacha, the world is destroyed, but Noah survives. Which is fine as we proceed, but 
We're not all Noah. Noah was called righteous and perfect and walked with God. What about the rest of us? Then we come to the hero of Rosh Hashanah. And the third concept, not of judgment and not of providence, but of covenant. That's how the blessing ends. Blessed are you, O God, who remembers the covenant. So, Cher Habrit. And who represents covenant on Rosh Hashanah? How does the blessing of Zechronot end? What are we recalling on Rosh Hashanah? In the central blessing, of course, the binding of Isaac. O God, we say, God, remember us for good. The same way Abraham suppressed his inclinations of kindness to carry out your will, so too should you, should your mercies overcome your nature, your basic nature, which is truth. Remember the binding of Isaac with mercy. Blessed are you, O God, who remembers the covenant. The central prayer of Rosh Hashanah is founded on three personalities. Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Of course, Rosh Hashanah, we are recalling creation. But the author of Tiyat of the Beirav understood that creation stories of Genesis don't end in chapter 1 nor in chapter 3 nor in chapter 10 either. They end in chapter 22. And it's interesting actually, if you think about it, come back to this, that uh, the Abraham story actually must be understood in two different ways. Because from one perspective, Abraham, Avram, the great father, is the first Jew. But from a different perspective, he's not the beginning but rather the culmination. You can read Abraham in two ways. I mentioned this to my class several times. That many years ago, a good friend of mine gave me a gift. In those days, we had something called records. I don't know if he remembers that anymore. We had records. <laughs> Vinyl, radio. So anyway, he gave me a, a... The gift was the 24th piano concerto of, uh, of Mozart. A great piece of music. So, in those days, you also had... Jack, the back, you could read about the music. So I grew up, my family, my parents loved classical music. Every morning, WQXR, early in the morning, wakes me up. For me, Mozart was the guy who came before Beethoven. That's how I grew up, you know. Then, I read the jacket cover. And it said, you know, Mozart was a great innovator. He took Bach's Baroque music with all kinds of interesting innovations. So I listened to the music. It was different. I heard Bach. And that's what the Chumash is about. You see, you can read the Abraham story as the beginning, which it is, the first patriarch. The book of Genesis is about the patriarchal narrative, but it's about something else. It's about the creation stories. And in that sense, he's not the first, but he's the last. The binding of Isaac secures and finalizes creation. Now, what's that about? It's about sacred space. It means, and anybody who reads the Torah understands this, it's so obvious, that what the Torah is about, and I'd say the Bible in general, is not about the God who creates heaven and earth. That's not what the Torah is about. The Torah is about primarily sacred space. Sacred time is also there. But Heschel notwithstanding, it's not really about sacred time. It's about a sacred land. Only a gullish you could think it's about sacred, sacred time. The Torah is about sacred space. The land of Canaan, the temple, the Migdash, that's what it's about. So what the Torah has done essentially in the beginning of the Torah, in these creation stories, it starts with heaven and earth, but it narrows it down. It narrows it down in the second story to Gan Bi'ed and Mikedem, to sacred space. The one who understood this actually 
was the Ramban. In his great commentary on the Torah, the Ramban understood it. The first Ramban. Because Rashi's asked the question, why does the Torah start with creation? It's the first Rashi. In case the nations of the world say, you stole our land, we'll say, it's God's land. God apportions it to whomever God wishes. So the Ramban says, I don't understand Rashi's question. Of course the Torah has to start with creation. It's a very important belief. It's part of our faith. So what do you mean, why does the Torah... The Ramban says, it means something else. The question is not why it started with creation. The question is, why does the Torah tell us all these stories which we don't understand anyway? They're all mysteries. Just say, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And the Ramban says, but the answer is that there's one thing in creation that is central. And that is the following point. That if you sin, you are banished from the sacred space. That is true in the Garden of Eden. It's true in the land of Canaan. Because after all, the covenant is that the Canaanites, because of their immorality, will, will be displaced. And we Jews can also be displaced, says the Torah. But the land of Canaan, says the Ramban, is the substitute for the Garden of Eden. That's something which is incredibly important towards an understanding of the Torah and beyond. The Torah is about sacred space. So if, in fact, what we have is a narrowing, if the second creation story is a narrowing of the first in terms of sacred space, and the primacy of the second story is clear in terms of sacred space, by analogy, I think we can argue that it's primary in terms of the human being, the human being's possibilities and, and limitations. I'll come back to this in a minute. But let me make the point that this idea that Shamayim Eretz, Eretz v'Shamayim, is somehow narrowed into this particular place, which is the point that hopefully next week we'll talk about in terms of the Mishkan, which is the, in a way the culmination or a culmination of the creation story, even appears in, in, in the book of Genesis itself. There are two lechuchas. There are two commands in this book to possess sacred space. The first is the first lechuchas about the land of Canaan generally. The second is hamakom, the space within the space. Abraham sets out in chapter 12 to secure the land of Canaan. When does Abraham, in fact, symbolically secure the land of Canaan? He secures the land of Canaan in chapter 14. Chapter 14 is the battle of the five kings against the four. I think if, we, if someone asked you, tell me, what are the important chapters of the Torah? You know, Tell me, greatest hits. Give me the top ten, you know. I doubt if the battle of the five kings against the four is going to make the charts. I, I don't think that's... But here's what's interesting in the battle of the five kings against the four. First of all, when you read it, if you have a feeling for the Chumash, develop the feeling for the Chumash. When you read chapter 14, you read that chapter, it doesn't feel like the other chapters. It feels different. It feels like it belongs not in chapter 14, but in chapter 4 or 5. It has a different feel to it. And what is this chapter actually about? Why is the Torah telling us a battle of five kings against four? I believe the Torah is not concerned primarily about five kings against four at all. The concern of chapter 14 is this. The four great kings of the world, Elam and Shinar, 
go to war against the peoples in the land of Canaan, not the five kings, but against the powerful nations in the land of Canaan. If you look at chapter 14, for example, you'll find the Emori, you'll find the Rephaim, you'll find uh, the list of nations, Chori, you'll find the list of nations that appear in the first chapter of the book of Devarim, the nations, the powerful ones who once possessed the land of Canaan. Abraham, they're defeated by the four kings. Abraham, in turn, defeats them. So one might say, by proxy, symbolically, what Abraham has done in chapter 14, through his successful battle, he has symbolically possessed the land of Canaan. And upon his return from this battle, he is greeted by a mysterious uh, fellow whose name is Malkitzedek. Malkitzedek, the king of Shalem, came to greet Abraham with bread and wine. And he was the priest to the high God. He blessed Abraham upon his successful symbolic conquest of Canaan. And what did he say? Blessed is Avram to the high God, creator of Shemayim Va'aretz, heaven and earth. And blessed is the highest God who allowed you to, who gave your enemies into your hands. In other words, what is the blessing? Malkitzedek greets Abraham upon Abraham's defeat of the four kings. What is the blessing? Blessed are you to the God, creator of heaven. Abraham, you have fulfilled God's plan in creation. God's plan in creation is Shemayim Ve'eretz, but more significantly, the sacred space. You have captured the sacred space. That's chapter... It's one of the great moments in the Bible. How do I know it's one of the great moments in the Bible? I'll tell you how I know. For two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, because chapter 15, which is the covenant about the land, the entire language of chapter 15 is based on chapter 14. I don't have the time to go through each. Every piece of the covenant is based on chapter 14. Every word. It's all there. And Mori, and Don, and Tzedakah, Malkitzedek. Down the so that's number one. In other words, Abraham, having secured the land, sets up the covenant for his descendants. What is the covenant about? It's about suffering, about exile, which is Egypt, and returning to the land. That's Abraham's life. He goes to Egypt in chapter 12. He secures the land in 14. But there's another reason that we know that the Malkitzedek incident, encounter, is of extreme significance. And it's very simply this. Because the rabbis of the Talmud who constructed our prayers. And the most important prayer, of course, is our Amidah, our silent prayer. And the most important blessing that we have in our tradition is the first blessing of the Shemona Esrei. But the language of the Shemona Esrei is taken from the Malkitzedek story. It's also a blessing, by the way. The, the Amidah is not just words, it's blessings. Baruch Avram el Elyon Konei Shemayim Va'aretz. El Elyon. Eloyon, we say Kone Hakol. By the way, in the Yerushalmi, it's Kone Shemayim Varetz. Friday night is Kone Shemayim. Magen Avraham. Shemigains. The rabbis have chosen this story, chapter 14, as the foundation of our core blessing. Now, it's funny. On, on, on Yom Kippur, they chose the ego. The golden cap is the story behind the Yom Kippur service. On Rosh Hashanah, the binding of Isaac. That we understand. The, what is Malkitzedek? 
because they understood the Malkitetic story as Abraham's fulfilling God's plan. Blessed is Abraham, you have fulfilled God, and blessed is God who, who enables you to do it, which is how they understood our prayers. I stand before God in prayer. What's the first thing I say? I want to do your will. What's the second thing I say? Give me the resources to do it. It's Baruch Avram You have done God's will. Shemayim va'aretz. Hashemayim va'aretz. Shemayim va'aretz isn't about Shemayim va'aretz. It's about the sacred space. Abraham himself understood this because later on he says exactly the same thing. When he instructs his servant in Genesis to go out and find a wife for, for, for Isaac, he says to the ser- servant, says, maybe she won't want to come, come, maybe I'll find the right woman, but she doesn't want to come schlepping from Aram back to the land of Canaan. What does Abraham say? No, no. The God, right? Hashem Hashemayim, the God of heaven, says Abraham, who took me, who took me, who swore to me, and who said, who said, I will give you this land. He invokes the God of Shemayim Va'aretz, but it's not Shemayim Va'aretz. It's Shemayim and Aretz Hazot. The same formulation is to be found in chapter 15, when Abraham is taken outside. Abraham, look at, the, look at the heaven. Can you number the stars? And then God continues. I am the God. I took you out of Ur Kastim to give you this land. The same formulation. That's Shemayim Va'aretz. Shemayim Va'aretz Hazot. What we have in the Torah then is a narrowing down. God is the creator of all. Which is important for other reasons. But the primary story is sacred space. Initially Eden, from which we are banished. And then the sacred space that we can inhabit. Which the Torah calls the land of Canaan. Within that sacred space, there's another space. Hamakom, the chosen place. That's what Abraham secures in chapter 22. Now, I may come back to the chapter 22 for a, in a bit, but before that, I wanted to deal with, with two more things. One is, I wanted to suggest what the relationship is between the first creation account and the second creation account. And the key to an understanding, in my view, of the relationship of the two is to be found in two uh, or three verses in the first chapter of the Torah. The first of them, which is second in order, at the very end of chapter 1, the Torah describes uh, the creation of the human being, created in God's image, the recipient of God's blessing. First God says to God, There's a decision to create the human in our image. And this human will lord it over the fish and over the animals and all that crawls on the earth. And then God created the human in God's image, male and female did God create them and God blesses them. And then the last two verses of chapter 1. Vayomer Elohim. Hineinu tati lochem et kol esav zorei azera. Asher al pnei kol haaretz. V'yet kol haetz asher bo priyetz zorei azara. Lochem yiyelu yachra. God said to them, right? God said to the human, I have given you all the 
bear all, every seed-bearing plant upon the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, they shall be yours for food. That's the next. And the last verse is, And to all the animals on the land, right? And to all the birds and all that crawls on the earth, right? All the, all the green plants for food. And it was so. God saw all that God had done. It was very good. Evening and morning, the sixth day. Here's my question. There are five verses about the human being in the last chapter of Genesis. Two of the five verses are what the human and the animal can eat. The human, we are told, can eat the plants and also the fruit. That's the next to last verse. The last verse is, but the animals, they can only have the plants and the vegetables. They can't have fruit. Question. Why is the Torah spending two or five verses on telling us what they can eat? The first three, we have the exalted What is the point of the last two verses? You can have not just vegetables, but you can have oranges too. But animals, sorry. But the answer is obvious, actually. The Torah is setting up the second story. So it's so obvious. The Torah is setting up the second story. In the second story, we suddenly have a snake. And what does the snake say to the woman? What does the snake say? It says, the gods, you can't eat any of the fruit? The, the previous verse says, The snake was more wily than all of the animals of the field which God had, which, which, which Hashem Elohim had made. The, the verse before that says that the man and the woman were, were arumim, they were naked, but not embarrassed. arum, the snake was arum. And the snake said to the woman, what, did God say you can't eat any of the fruit? And the woman said to the snake, we can eat the fruit, but, the, but from the trees in the middle of the garden, that God said we shouldn't, we shouldn't touch even lest we die. Question. Who is the snake talking about? Himself, obviously. I mean, what kind of God is this? God doesn't allow you to... What is the snake thinking? I don't like to psychologize the text, but here, you don't, you don't need to be a psychologist for this. The snake says very simply, the human being can eat fruit. The animals can't. Where do I fit in exactly? From one perspective, I'm an animal. But from the other perspective... I'm, I'm better than they are. I'm a room. Not only am I a room, but they're a room and, and I'm a room. So I'm more human than an animal. I think I'm entitled to the fruit. But God won't let me have the fruit. What kind of God is this? Let me ask you, woman. Can you eat the fruit? No fruit for you? What kind of. Oh, no, no. It's not a, it's not a, that's not the reason. This God is very protective of God's space, of God's place. By the way, it's not clear the snake is lying, by the way. That's another story, but that's not for me now. You see, it's like, let me explain it better. You see, in chapter 1, Casuto. Casuto makes the point. Casuto's great. He, makes, he noticed something in chapter 1, actually notices many things in chapter 1, but one of them is this. The Torah in chapter 1, Torah in chapter 1 describes species that God creates. 
So God creates the plants and God creates the uh, animals and the birds and the fish, different kinds of things. Only in one place does the Torah single something out. <coughs> That's found in chapter 1, verse number 21. Vayivra Elohim et ha-taninim ha-gdolim. God created the great, the great serpents, the great sea monsters. So Kasuto asked the question, why does the Torah single out the, the Taninim Agdolim? What, what is the point? It's the only single thing that's mentioned. To which Kasuto gives the following answer. This is his approach. We know, he says, anybody who studied the myths of the ancient Near East know that in those accounts, there are battles at, in the beginning of time between various forces. Typically, Monsters of the sea. Tiamat, or Tahom in Hebrew. Tanin is another one. Rahav is another one. Yam is another one. So Kasuto says, first of all, that was prevalent in the ancient Near East. Number two, he argues, very interestingly, and we'll see this next week. I have a slightly different take on it, but we'll see this next week. That this myth this conception of creation as a battle upon the beginning of time between various forces, Kasuto argues, appears often in the poetic sections of our, of our own Bible. In the Psalms, you have it often. In the book of Eov, we have it. Eov complains about God who's picking on him. Hayam anochi im tanin? What am I, yam or tanin? Just a little guy. What are you picking on me for? So Kasuto says, we have in many places in our own Bible references to this other account. But the Torah, says Kasuto in the first chapter, wants to counter this. So the Torah says, God created many things, the, the plants and the trees and, 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 and the great sea monsters, as if to say, unlike the other accounts in which there's a struggle, the Tanin is, is struggling, but not in this account. In this account, there's no resistance. There's no other force. And there's no effort on God's part. It's all vayomer, vayomer, vayomer. God is speaking, God is thinking, no resistance, no struggle. That's what Kasuto says. I'll tell you my problem with it. I mean, I think he's right. Let me just say that straight out. But what I don't like about his work, and uh, let me tell you something else, by the way, just a small. When I was a kid, so I went to day school, you know, and I studied, like many of us have, studied Chumash. Anyway, on Saturday afternoon, there was a fellow who gave a class in the synagogue. Almost nobody went. So one day, it was like a short Shabbos, you know what I mean? Like, and so my mother said, said David, you, bet, you better go. I said, Mom, I'm pretty tired. She says, listen, if you, he has very few people, and if you don't go, you might embarrass him. I was, you might embarrass him. I said, well, you can't embarrass him. I said, I'm tired. You got to go. So I went and there was me and one other fellow in the class. He brought in Kasuto's documentary hypothesis with him. He had Kasuto's work. And I remember reading, he read it, it's an attack on the documentary. And I, re- I was 12 years old. And that stuck with me. The reason I got interested in, in Bible later, years later, I never forgot Kasuto's work. I mean, I consider him one of my real rebbies in terms of, and I thank my mother for that. But in any event, so, uh, he's right, but the danger of Kasuto is, I think he gives too much power to, to, the, to the Canaanite myths. He sees the Torah as always responding to the Canaanite myths. And frankly, 
I don't want to give the Canaanite myth so much credit. So, I mean, that's said half in jest. I, I, I think that Sutta may be correct, but there's something else here, which is this. In the Torah, of course, Tanin means a serpent. But in the Torah, we have a, a, uh, another term, essentially, for the word Tanin. For example, in the story of Moses in Egypt, when God speaks to Moshe, uh, story of the snare, and Moshe complains to God that they're not going to believe me, right? And Moses wants a, a sign from God. Signs and miracles in the fourth chapter of Exodus. So God says to Moses, what is in your hand? Moses says, a staff. Throw it to the ground. Moses throws it to the ground by Hila Nachash. It became a Nachash, a snake. But later in, in Exodus, when God instruct, instructs Moses to go to Pharaoh with Aaron, he says, tell Aaron, throw down, you're going to say, throw down your staff. And what does it become in the words of the Torah? Tanin. Tanin. He with Tanin. Now, why when, he, why when he performs the sign for the Jews, it's a Nachash? And why for Pharaoh it's a Tanin is not for now. It's interesting and I have much to say about that. Not for now. But my point is, Nachash and Tanin are used interchangeably in the Torah. And that's exactly what the Torah is setting up in chapter 1. It's very simple. You have the snake. The snake is unhappy. As snakes probably usually are because they feel they deserve better, you know? They want more, right? The snake, however, cannot attack... A frontal attack on God will do no good. Cannot succeed. God is all-powerful. The transcendent God is all-powerful. You can't attack God directly. So what does the snake do? The snake attacks God indirectly. The attack on the human is, of course, an attack on God. And what is the snake's plan? The Nachash. The Nachash attacks not God, but rather God's steward. After all, in chapter 1, it says that the human is B'tzalmenu, Kidmutenu, is God's representative on earth. And the snake is out to destroy God's plan. What is God's plan in chapter 2? Sacred space. That the human being and God can interface in sacred space. So the snake sets out to defeat God. You can't attack God directly, but you can attack God indirectly. And indirectly means the snake is that which tries to prevent the human from occupying the sacred space. And as often happens in the battle between the snake and God, the snake wins. The snake is successful. The snake succeeds. The human is banished from the Garden of Eden, and then we start all over again to secure the alternative sacred space. Now, this snake, by the way, is not to be confined at all, of course, to the uh, story of the Garden of Eden. The snake, then, in the rest of the Torah, has various uh, instantiations, one of which we'll come to next week. And there, there are several, actually. There are several. I'll mention one of them, just to, to whet your interest. The, later in the Torah, the uh, Torah speaks of Jacob's attempt to return home, to come back to the place that he has promised to return to, which the Torah calls Beit El, the house of God. But before he gets to the house of God, somebody is there to stop him. The Torah calls this mysterious person the Ish, the strange Ish. And this Ish actually wrestles with Jacob, tries to block him from entering the land. It's interesting that in that struggle with this Ish, who tries to prevent him from occupying Beit El, 
we're told that the Ish wrestled with Jacob. The Hebrew term in the Bible is Vayeovek Ish Imo Adalot Hashachar. Vayeovek, of course, taken from the Hebrew word Avak, which means dust. Avak and Afar are used interchangeably in the, in the Torah. And this Ish, of course, who will cast Jacob when Jacob is, Jacob is alone. Jacob is, uh, Jacob is alone. And Vayivate Yaakov Livado. That's when the snakes attack, when you're alone. Try to prevent you from occupying the sacred space. What Jacob is able to do in that story, of course, is to overcome the Ish by being transformed, by, by turning into something else, by, by turning into Israel. But that's an example of, of someone who tries to block you from occupying the space. And we have to remember that when God speaks to the snake in the third chapter, God says to the snake that... Uh, you will be the eternal enemy of the, uh, of the human being. Between you, you and her, and her descendants and you. There's an eternal struggle which takes place between the human who wants to occupy the space, interface with God, and someone who stands to block the human being. The main, of course, the main instantiation that we'll see, the Torah calls Amalek. That's what Amalek's about. It's blocking you from moving forward, from entering the space. Maybe next week, if we have a chance, we'll see how the Torah uses Amalek in this way. But there's more than one snake, as it were. There's more than one who tries to block you. So the, the enemy of the snake isn't so much the human, but it's primarily God. In fact, in the Torah, that's how the Torah describes Amalek. Not just as the human enemy, but Milchamar Hashem Ba'amalek Midar Dar. It's God's enemy. The Torah sets this up in chapter 1. Interesting is something else, by the way. As I'm talking, I thought of something else. It's this. You know, in the second chapter, in the second creation story, when you read it, you see that the name of God is Hashem Elohim. Throughout the story. Without the, 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 the narrator, as it were, uses always Hashem Elohim. In chapter 1, the name of God is Elohim. That's one of the foundations of the documentary hypothesis that different documents use different names of God. I don't want to enter into the question about different documents, but here's what I do want to say about it. First of all, that the use of Hashem Elohim in chapter 2 and chapter 3, to me, proves exactly the opposite. There is no other chapter in the entire Bible, none, where we have consistently the use of Hashem Elohim. This is the only place you have it. Which says to me that what the Torah is saying in the second creation account is, in the first account you have Elohim. But in this account, it's also about creation, but there's an additional aspect, which is the personal God, the intimate God, the weaker God, the human God, and that's Hashem Elohim. And that's true of chapter 2 and chapter 3, with one exception. There's one place in chapter 2 and 3 where you don't have Hashem Elohim. Just one place. Over and over, Hashem Elohim. You'll see for yourself, if you read through, you'll see Hashem Elohim, Hashem Elohim, but one place you don't have it. And it appears in the beginning of chapter 3. The snake was more wily than all the other animals. Right? Asher saw Hashem Elohim. Vayomer Eloisha. And the snake said to the woman, Av kiyomar Elohim lo tochumi Did Elohim say you can't eat? Not Hashem Elohim. But when the snake is speaking, 
the Torah uses the term Elohim. Was, no, no, Elohim didn't say that. Elohim said you can have every, everything, just the stuff in the middle. No, 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 says the snake. Elohim Right? Why does the Torah switch, actually? Throughout the, right afterwards, Vayishu would call Hashem Elohim, throughout, consistently. Just over here when the snake, because what the Torah is trying to do is connect us back to the first chapter. The first chapter is where Elohim said to the human, you can have the trees, but the animals can't. And that's what the snake, did Elohim say you can't eat any of the, of course that's exactly what Elohim said in chapter 1, not about them, but about him. So in chapter 2, you see, in chapter 3, in the second account, it's Hashem Elohim. Now let me tell you something very interesting about this. And two, what? Let me find that. No, Hashem Elohim. Shemelokim. Shemelokim throughout, right? <coughs> Shemelokim. Now, here's something interesting. I began this evening by pointing out, I want to make two final points and I'll take some comments, by pointing out that this binding of Isaac story is the culmination of the creation narrative, it's the securing of the sacred space. So I was curious about what name the Torah employs in the binding of Isaac. The sacred space is the replacement for, for Gan Eden. What is the name of God in the story of the binding of Isaac. So let's see. Let's see what it is. What is it? Let's see. After these things, verse number one, Elohim nisat Abraham. It's Elohim. Right? Then Abraham sets out. And where does he go? Elohim. It's twice. Right? Then he sets out. He keeps on walking with his son. And he says to his son, Elohim yirelo hasel That's the third time. That's the fourth time. Four times. Then when Abraham is about to slaughter his son, that's one. Hineni, don't do it. That's the fifth time. Five Elohim and one Yudhe Vavhe. And Abraham looks up and he sees the aisle. And Abraham names the place Hashem Yireh. That's three. Hashem is four. Binishbati Hashem is five. The name appears ten times in the chapter. Five times Hashem and five times Elohim. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't. The number ten is the dominant number of all the creation stories. Ten generations, ten generations, ten generations, ten nations, ten names of God. Ten Vayomers in the beginning. Ten names of God in the Akedah. But the uh, securing of the sacred space is not about Elohim. It's not about Hashem either. It's Hashem Elohim. It's both. It means that what the Torah is setting up, it means what the Ramban said is correct. That the scheme of the creation stories is about, yes, creation in general. But the main point is the second creation account, the sacred space. There is no Adam 1 and Adam 2 in the Torah. Let's put it this way. There's one Adam. Adam 2 is the only Adam. There's the Adam is part of nature. That's, that's not what the Torah is about. It's not about oscillating between. It's not, not so. There's one and only one, which is the second account. That's what it's about. It's about the sacred space. Now let me conclude with one thought. 
Because the question you ask yourself, I think, is the book of Genesis begins with creation. It's an overlap, of course, because Abraham is the first patriarch. Abraham secures the place in chapter 22. What is Jacob about? What is the rest of the book about? What is the rest of this book about? And I want to make two suggestions about this. And I'll end with a note, of a speculative note. You see, Abraham goes to the place that God, that God will tell him. Because the holy place, the sacred place in the Torah is always the place that God tells you. Never one, the human never chooses the holy place, ever. In fact, the term in Deuteronomy is Hashem. It's always the place that God is choosing. The human responsibility is to figure out what God chose, but God makes the choice. Abraham, no doubt, thought, based on his behavior, that Beersheba was the place. He plants a tree, he calls out to the eternal God, he lives there for many years, he makes a covenant. Uh, after these things, God tests him and says, go to the place that I will tell you. The key word in chapter, one of the key words in chapter 22 is the word hamakom, which appears a total of four times. Hamakom, not a place, but hamakom, the article, the place. And he set out from Beersheba to find the place. And he finds the place. And he names the place. And he sees the place. Seeing and naming. That's what Adam does in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden. Second creation. He names, he names the animals. He names the Isha. He names himself. God brings the animals to see what Adam is going to do in the second creation account. And then he goes back to Beersheba. That's chapter 22. And if you skip a few chapters ahead, someone else leaves Beersheba. And if you look at the chapter, of course, he goes to sleep. And where does Jacob go to sleep? Well, Haramari is a medrash. That's not in the text. What does the text say? How many times does it appear, Hamakom, in that story, by the way? I checked it out myself. I knew it would be this before I checked it, but it is. How many times? Six. Six times. Because four times is the Akedah. The Torah is linking them. You have Hamakom. Here's what's really interesting, by the way. I was curious about something else, about 22 and 28. Shemayim Va'aretz appear also ten times. Five times Shemayim and five times Eretz. Now I want to say two things about this. What is Jacob's role? In the, the hero of Genesis is not Abraham. There's one hero in Genesis. Jacob. Israel. The book's about Jacob. It's funny. Abraham spends his whole life searching for the sacred place. It's his life. From the first Lech Lecha to the last Lech Lecha. He's always wandering. The God before whom I walked, he says, Asher hitalachti lefanov. God's instruction to Abraham, hitalech lefanai tamim. It's always about walking. It's always about searching. And finally, after the whole, all the struggles with Sarah and Hagar, he finally... He finds the place. He sees it from the distance. He sees the ram behind. And he names the place. The place that God sees or God chooses. It took a lifetime to discover the sacred space. And then Jacob sets out after having stolen a blessing from his brother and after deceiving his blind father. And he goes to sleep. And where does he sleep? In the holiest place. He dreams and he sees a staircase going to heaven. And the angels are going up and down. And God is making promises to Jacob. Jacob encounters the holiest place 
in the beginning of his career. It took Abraham a lifetime. What it means is, Jacob has a different task in life. It's not about discovering the sacred place. It's about returning to the sacred place. How do you get back, is the question. How do you get back to the holy place? It's what Jacob is about. It's about return. And actually, it's about two returns in Jacob's life. He first returns after this struggles in the house of Lavan, where in Jacob's own words, he encounters the suffering and the slavery, the Inui and the Avdut, and, and being the stranger, the outside, the alien, the Geirut. The experience of Geirut and Avdut and Inui, as Jacob himself describes it in chapter 31 and 32, is what enables Jacob to return. At the end of his life, in chapter 46, he sets out once again from Beersheba, where he brings sacrifices, and once again he goes into exile. And there too, the return to the sacred space, the return to the land, the return to the Mishkan, is only accomplished through, once again, the Geirut and the Avdut and the Inui that appears in the very beginning of the book of Exodus. It's all about coming back to the sacred space. How does one make it back? And making it back sometimes is much more difficult than discovering. That's what Jacob is about. How can we get back? That's how the book of Genesis is structured. It's nice, you know? It's, 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 and it's, it's so clear. But getting back isn't clear. Getting back is very complicated. And there's one other point I wanted to end with a note of speculation, which I think is actually true in the text. And not just in this text, but true in the Bible. And that is... And I'll end with this thought. You know, the replacement for Eden, which is the land of Canaan and the place, that one that God sees or chooses. In that story, Abraham is uh, about to sacrifice his son. And then the angel calls down from heaven. The angel calls down from heaven. This Malach Hashem. And then after Abraham brings the sacrifice, the angel calls down from heaven a second time. And I was wondering about the angel that calls down from heaven. What is that about? But I think if you read the stories of Abraham and Jacob together, the Hamakom four times in the Akedah, and the six Hamakoms in the story of Yaakov, what's clear is that there is a sacred space on earth but there's also a sacred space up there in heaven. And the two are aligned. The two are aligned. You know, we're used to thinking, and I'll end with this thought because it ties into next week, you know, when Moses ascends the mountain, after we all hear the Ten Commandments, and Moses is going to the, to the mountain, and God instructs Moses, come up and I will show you, give you the instructions about building the, the, the Mishkan. And when you read the instructions of the Mishkan, there are two kinds of instructions. One talks about the specifics of the Mishkan. How, how many amot, how many amot, what does it look like? And then consistently in the Mishkan is something else. You are to build the Mishkan, as I showed you on the mountain. The, the image of what you saw on the mountain and I think we, we understand it typically as we have a Mishkan over here and God maybe showed, taught Moses how to build the Mishkan. But when you look at the Chumash, there's another way to read it, which is not that the Mishkan that you're going to build, I've given you the blueprints, apart from the uh, 
apart from the verbal uh, instruction, I've given you the blueprints. But Ketavni Tamar sounds to me like something else, which is Moses ascends to heaven and he sees the Mishkan. The, the, Mishkan, the real Mishkan's not here. The real Mishkan's up there. There is a heavenly tabernacle and there is an earthly tabernacle. This is what Jacob sees. The angels are right above where he is, okay? There's another Mishkan. There's another sacred space. The sacred space on earth that God has chosen down here is parallel to the sacred space up there. It's actually what it says at the end of Samuel. When David, in this last story of Samuel, counts the people and is punished for his sin, and God's about to destroy the people, and David says to God, spare them and spare them and take me instead. And then David sees the angel of God in Chronicles between heaven and earth. In Samuel, the angel of God. And the angel of God was standing above the threshing floor of Aravna, Mr. Aron, Mr. Ark. And David goes to that place, and that's the place of the temple. There is a heavenly temple and an earthly temple. There's some place on earth, I think, that the two of them meet. And that's the place we're searching for. Anyway, thank you. Okay. Now, yeah. If anybody wants to comment? Yes, please. Right. Right. Well, I, I actually I had intended to speak about the Nachash next week. Because I think that is that one of the critical differences between the two stories is apart from the fact that there's something low tove in the second story of the human being being alone, there's also the snake, which is really low tove and there's a very different, so I, you know, it's, yes, I did want to address it, at least in terms of how the rest of the Torah uses this snake story to make its point. There's something in the second account, there's some opposition to God. That's the point. And that opposition elsewhere in the Torah becomes not a small thing. Uh, it's, it's Amalek, it's the Ish, it's Bilam, it's, it's the forces that try to block you from from reaching your sacred space. By the way, the Midrash, by the way, sees this very clearly. Amalek for the Midrash is the force that wants to stop the building of the temple. That's clear in many, many Midrashim. And like many Midrashim, they picked up on something real within the text. But I'll come to that next time. Yes, please. Okay, you could talk up louder, please. Stand up, stand up. Yeah. <coughs> yes. Yes, it does.
All right, how does that relate to what I said? I mean, I don't disagree with that, actually. What do you Let me, let, me, let, me, let me say this, okay? The idea that the human being is capable of overcoming this is actually explicit later in the Torah, not in this creation account, but when God speaks to Cain. When God says to Cain, imtetiv seit, which means that, as you say, God doesn't give challenges which are insurmountable. After all, the Torah wasn't given, as the Gemara says elsewhere, to Malachi The Torah is given to human beings with a lot of foibles. And I would say more than that, that the, in general, the story of Jacob and, his, and his, his growth and his wrestling and his struggles and his failures and ultimate triumphs are testimony to the fact that it's about the struggle and it's more where you end up than the failures along the way. I think that is a, a deep truth. Yes? Tanin has several meanings, actually. Tanin can mean a crocodile. It can also mean, in the ancient Near East, it was a great serpent. So, Hatanin Hagadol, it can be a crocodile, it can be a serpent, it can be a sea monster. It depends on the context. I don't believe it means any, only one of those things. Modern's another story. Yeah. No, I'm talking about Biblical Hebrew and the ancient Near East. Tanin in the ancient Near East is one of the forces that fights with God in the begin or a god in the beginning of time. Yes, what do you want to add? Well, the, I think it's unclear whether the snake is wrong or right. I mean, that is, I mentioned earlier that the two ways to read the story. One is, the question, it revolves around what the word hayom means. On the day you eat it, you will die. So the classical commentaries understand that to mean not that you actually die when you eat it, but you'll, sort of be, you'll be sentenced to death. That's how the Rambana and others understand it. Your point, however, is well taken. That from a certain perspective... The snake doesn't lie. Let me, just, let, me, let me make the following point, and which is not a full answer to your observation, which is that the, the greatest liars never lie. And the best is, Lavan, who's the classical arch-liar of the Torah, never said a lie. Jake, I worked seven years for Rachel. What does Lavan say? I'd rather give it to you than give it to anybody else. It's true. It may take 14 years, it may take 20 years. He never lies, actually. So, what did Mary McCarthy say? I she, everything she says is true and she's the biggest liar I know. The, yeah, so the point is that the snake is deceitful, a room, okay? Whether technically he speaks the truth or not is not the point. The question is, it, it, it is misleading in a sense, and that's the point of the snake. I'll take one final, yes?
Yeah. It's the whole Bible, right? That's just the whole, I think the entire Bible is the only time you have it. Yeah. Yes. Adoshem Eloki Matit Enli. Yes. Yes. Right, yes. Right. That, that, that is, yes, that's a good point. I had that in mind, too. But it's slightly different. It's Adoshem Elohim over there. But it's, it's, I think it is connected, actually. And it's certainly something to think about. Okay, go ahead, please. Okay. I wasn't. I, 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 I didn't attribute those powers to Noah. I, don't, I, don't, I, I never attributed those powers to Noah. I simply made the observation that the world is destroyed and that Noah is the one who was chosen to, chew, uh, to, to pick some animals and to repopulate the earth and that the language of repopulation is the language of creation of chapter 1. I never suggested that Noah himself is creating something out of nothing. I simply made the observation that the language of the Torah in describing what God does is similar to the initial creation story and that what Noah is doing is repopulating the world as opposed to picking a particular place. There's no sense in the Noah story of sacred space. I will, okay, one last comment and I'll stop. Yeah. With the singling out of sea monsters, this unique element in creation, yes. That was my point. That's totally my point. That the Nachash and the Tanin are actually linked. Whereas the Tanin can't... You, think you can't attack God directly. That's the point of chapter 1. God creates... But the Nachash attacks God indirectly. And that's the Tanin and Nachash linkage is exactly my point. Which that's you're, the reason why yeah. the Nachash can never say Hashem Elohim because the relation, when that term is used, it always implies a relationship between the creature and the creator, between God and the human. And with the Nachash, this inherently is not, by the nature of what the Nachash represents, it's not possible okay. to have that relationship. That's possible, but it's also true that the, when the woman responds to the Nachash, she also doesn't use the, the name Hashem Elohim either, so it has because to be... <coughs> okay, possibly. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah.